The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is brought to you by Higher Gravity, a craft beer bar located in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the north side and Blue Ash neighborhoods. And I don't know about you, Mike, but this is my go-to bar. It's my walking distance bar. It's the best selection of beer in the city bar. It is the mug club bar. It is the best draft selection bar. It's the best to-go beer bar. And frankly, the best bartender's bar. I love the one in north side because... It is a fantastic place. There is a massive amount of beers on tap, a great bottle selection. I love it, man. Hard to find a place that still really loves beer, and they do it. And it's for that reason. We'll see you there. We'll be at the bar. We'll be at the bar. Welcome to the Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast. I am Brett Coleman Baker, owner and brewer at Urban Artifact in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I am here, like usual, with the one, the only, my confidant, Michael Morgan. Mike, how are you? I am doing fantastic, Brett. I've been dodging the man, staying out of jail, keeping my nose clean. And I am really geeked to be here recording the podcast, drinking some beers. We are drinking some Anchor Steams today for a reason. This beer has been around since 1896, but it is still called one of America's first craft beers. So we got a pretty special episode today. We do, man. I am geeked that this guy, Fritz Maytag, who, as you may or may not know, is the founder of Anchor Brewing Company, the modern founder of Anchor yeah, Brewing Company. Which is actually an interesting part of what we're going to get into with this interview. And if the name Maytag sounds familiar to you because it's on every appliance in your house, uh, that is not coincidental. He is from that Maytag family. I don't remember if it was his grandfather or his great-grandfather, but one of his grandfathers started the Appliance Corporation, He's one of two guys that gets called founder of craft beer. He starts out with a pre-existing brewery. And, you know, I've always kind of struggled with the details of this. So I'm pretty geeked, not only that he took our call and agreed to talk to us, but also to get into this and really understand how a brewery that had been around since 1896 becomes one of America's two first craft breweries. And on that note... Fritz, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So, Mr. Maytag, one of the things that I think is fascinating about your story is that you didn't set out to be a brewer. From what I understand, it wasn't even anywhere on your radar. This was very serendipitous. You just happened to be hanging out at your favorite bar in San Francisco, and somehow that wound up in you owning a brewery. Is that how it happened? Yes, that's absolutely right. It was the old spaghetti factory, and it was my hangout. So what was the beer like then? What did you like about it as as a 20-something guy on the uh, customer side of the bar? Well, it was um, often a little bit tart, but it was um, what I liked about it was that it was a local, distinctive, rather odd-named product, and it was for all they ever had on draft at the old spaghetti factory. The owner a long story, but he dreamed of having a bar and having a restaurant and having Anchor Steam on draft. You said Anchor Steam was a little tart. Did I mean, knowing what you know now, do you think that... Uh... 
well, I know it's now that I look back on it all, I know perfectly well what the story was, but sometimes it was worse than others. But it was, uh, he never served it if it was bad. And frankly, at that point, I just thought it was a little odd and I enjoyed drinking it. Uh, I love sour beer, it's all we make. Uh, so that's that's uh, it's an interesting anecdote. I hate sour beer. <laughs> I spent the next, uh, several years, quite a few years, desperately trying to figure out how to make beer that would not go sour in an old-fashioned, traditional, medieval, really, brewery without refrigeration or proper cleaning. And I hate sour beer. And um, I just can't, you know, I studied brewing and I knew about lactic beers and but i i hate hate sour beer so that that we have that uh, difference so was it a uh, a a lot of just guess check change the variable try again to chase that sour bug out originally or did you have a group of brewers you could lean on no it was a long 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 uh, it took a while after I invested in the brewery, I bought control from some people who were bankrupt, didn't want to go bankrupt and sold for nothing. And uh, and I, so I was a partner with the man who owned the other half and I tried to figure out what to do. And I went out trying to sell the beer and it didn't take long to realize that it's hard to sell bad beer. And <laughs> either I, I, something had to be done and I took on the task of figuring out what to do. And it was a long process. I did not do what in retrospect would be the obvious thing, and that is to hire uh, a retired brewmaster to tell me what to do. I just figured it all out myself over a long period of time. I did get advice. I got wonderful advice right away from a man who called me up and and said um, I heard, he'd heard I bought the brewery and he was now retired, but he used to work for a major uh, brewing supply company. And he had told me he had traveled the West with a microscope in his car and consulted with brewmasters all over the West and that he could uh, give me a few tips about what was, what I needed to do. And he did. And they were, as you can imagine, they were uh, absolutely practical tips, but I was still totally ignorant. I, um, I began studying uh, bacteria. I brought my microscope down to the brewery. And the point of that is I was the kind of guy who had a microscope. I'd had a good microscope since I was a boy. And <laughs> I brought it down to the brewery and set up a lab and started spending long nights uh, at the brewery uh, studying what was happening from the microscopic point of view and bacteriology. I learned how to do Graham Stains, a, a medical lab uh, owner that I knew who would become kind of a friend, helped me learn how to do a Graham Stain. And I soon became uh, quite an expert on uh, microbiology. Yeast and all the rest. Uh, you can imagine. I mean, it was a long, long struggle. We had a cool ship in those days. We would pump the hot work up to the roof from the brew kettle. That was the only pump in the brewery. And it would fill this shallow galvanized uh, pan with open to the outside. One morning I came in, there were pigeons hanging out in there. <laughs> For those of you who are wondering, a cool ship is not just a neat ship. A cool ship is used to cool the beer prior to fermenting it. Back in the day, this was done because we didn't have the technology to cool the beer with glycol or cold water or ice, especially depending on where you were in the country. So they used a cool ship. 
I always think that it's associated with spontaneous fermentation, like with, with yeast falling into the vat like you do a Belgian beer. Is that not right? Kind of. Cool ships are traditionally used with spontaneously fermented beers, but they were also used with regular beers back in the day as well. However, the thing was, back when cool ships were the hot technology, people were still using brewer's yeast to do the majority of fermentations, and you would drink beer young and fresh before the wild yeast and bacteria had chance to take over and make it funky or sour. So on one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. Um, if it's sitting out in the open, funk is going to drop into it. Yes. It can get spontaneously fermented, whether that's your intent or not. Yeah. A little bit of night air brings all sorts of joy for everybody to share. Um, anyway, I looked at all of this in the microscope and I could see a, a zoo. I realized uh, we had to have uh, a sterile wort going into the fermenter, and that was the first step. And so I've used the cool ship as a holding tank for a uh, plate uh, heat exchanger and built a special room, a cleaner room and, and all the rest, and got a plate heat exchanger and was able to and learned how to sterilize it with, with hot water and cool the wort down to... Uh, roughly uh, 60 degrees Fahrenheit and tested it uh, going into the fermenter and it was sterile. And so that was a big achievement. That was a big, big deal. And then I went from there, all the obvious steps. And I mean, it was just a hell of a story. Uh, yeah. Um, incidentally, my microscope is now in the Smithsonian in the, in the craft brewing uh, but we were going to get to asking you how cool it feels to be inducted into the Smithsonian. <laughs> well, very cool. Um, but the point I was going to make is that by the early mid seventies, we had the most modern small brewery in the world by far. And there was no brewery anywhere in the world more traditional in the basic brewing philosophy and um, I would argue, for the fun of it, with someone who knows brewing, that we had the most modern brewery uh, in, of any size in the world. We were all stainless steel except the copper brew kettle. We were all cleaned in place, tanks, pipes, pumps, everything, all sterilized with hot water and tested for sterility constantly with a super high quality microbiology abilities. We were centrifuging the, the finished beer, flash pasteurizing the finished beer, aseptically bottling the beer with carbon dioxide for counter pressure and uh, testing all of this. I don't think there's another brewery in the world. Now, you, I would argue Coors was probably the most advanced brewery in the world and the only difference there was that they had uh, glass-lined tanks, whereas we were stainless steel. But just to make the point, we were all stainless steel and all cleaned in place. There was nothing, nothing like it in the world. Were you doing that in the original location, or was that after you moved? Yes. Believe it or not, uh, we were in this a very funky, strange little building. Several people who knew brewing came to visit at that point. Jeff Coors was one. I took him around, and when we finished, he looked at me and he said, I would give anything 
to have what you have here. This is unbelievable. And I know what I have seen, and I got to tell you, this is just incredible. There were two or three other people who really knew brewing who came then. We had tried to keep all of this secret from the industry. I didn't want anyone to realize that we were, were what we knew, which was we had the world by the tail. <laughs> the world didn't know yet, but we thought we knew. We were sure, I was sure that we had the right idea to make a very, very traditional beer by hand in a small little brewery and sell it uh, pretty much locally and have it be without any additives or adjuvants or anything like that. Actually, we did use Burton salts, I would, I would say. Otherwise, nothing. And I was just sure that we had a great a product and a great story. What I like to say is what the world wants is a good story that's true. And we had a wonderful story, and it was true. And a bizarre name, Anchor Steam. I mean, there was never a worse name for any. <laughs> <laughs> With a name like that, it's got to be good, right? The... <laughs> Um, anyway, I tried to keep it secret. We, there was a report that came out every month, California beer sales, and we were always listed because we were a brewery and it always read 0.0. I thought that was fantastic because <laughs> it meant that nobody realized what we were up to. Nobody would realize what we were really up to. And, and then one day it read 0.1 and uh, we were off. So you mentioned that no one saw it coming and that was good because it gave you a leg up on the competition. What was it like when, you know, like people like Ken Grossman started poking around and asking a bunch of questions? Did you, did you ever feel like, who's this guy? I need to squash this competition. Or like, was it more like, Oh, thank goodness. I finally have somebody else who's going to push this narrative of what beer can be. Well, it was a little bit of both. The first one was new Albion who was set up in San Rafael and brewed an ale, but, Unfortunately, uh, he was a charming guy, but kind of prickly. And uh, so we didn't really know each other well. But uh, he, uh, in my opinion, they they failed because they were a classic uh, English brewery trying to bottle without pasteurization. And, of course, they had bacteria contaminating the product, and it went sour. And that's one of the reasons I don't like sour beer. But um, then came Ken and it surprised me, but the truth is that at that point, I did not think that anyone would be capable of doing what we had done. And I wasn't at all frightened, really. Ken was the first obviously knowledgeable person that came to, to me for advice, and I gave him a lot of advice. I basically, I said, clean, 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 clean. And... Uh, he took the advice, or already perhaps uh, already understood that that was what's needed. And so at some point, it, I shifted from thinking nobody would ever be human, it wouldn't be humanly possible to do what we had done, to realizing that there were going to be others, and that, you know, the, the old saying, the best place to open a shirt store is next to a shirt store. <laughs> So all the people who started up in those early days were copying us to almost totally in not just in brewing, traditional brewing, but in the whole marketing uh, style and, and all the rest of it. I called, I still call Sierra Nevada, Sierra Duera, monkey see, monkey do. 
<laughs> Monty Ken and I became friends, or I would say, let's say, friendly competing colleagues. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing like someone who knows what you know and who has done what you have done to appreciate each other. And so we ended up with a very, very good relationship from a brewing point of view with Sierra Nevada. I thought some of their marketing and sales tactics in the early days were theft. <laughs> a lot of people came to us and we just showed everybody everything. It was, um, it was great fun. And uh, by then we couldn't make enough beer. So we weren't really, mind you, that was a long time coming. Uh, we had a terrible time selling the beer, even after it was very, very good, and we knew what we were doing. Uh, it was a very, very slow process to develop a market for what we had. But I just had been given carte blanche by the big brewers. Budweiser, Lucky Lager, the local breweries, Coors was especially helpful. And um, I savored the sense of camaraderie and uh, brotherhood that the brewing trade had at the brewing level. You don't go, we didn't go to Budweiser and ask for advice on sales or marketing, but at a brewer's level, the other brewers from big to small were just completely open, treated me and us with respect, even when we didn't deserve any respect at all. And so I, it came very natural to me and to our a whole company to just be completely open and welcoming to anyone who came to us for advice. It didn't take long before they really didn't need advice. Now they came and, well, never mind. Um, that was an interesting transition from being all alone to having knowledgeable, respectful relationships with our competitors who we didn't really see them as competitors. Mind you, it's an interesting fact that in those days, I used to go, of course, every year frequently to the Small Brewers Association, Brewers Association of America, which was the Leinenkugels and, um, and FX Matt and uh, all the rest, uh, the small family country brewers who were all trying to compete with the cheapest lager beers made by the big guys and having a terrible, a terrible time. And so I could see that they were brothers in arms to a certain extent because they were not competing with each other. Each of them was overwhelmingly regional in their market so that they did not, mostly they did not uh, compete with each other. And so there was a sense of brotherhood that I, um, that just continued uh, when I began to have competitors with with whom we didn't really think we were competing, like Sierra Nevada. So I think that kind of explains a little bit about, you know, why we start to see the, the craft beer movement emanate from out of Northern California. You know, when you combine Jack McAuliffe with yourself and then the people who, you know, want to open that shirt store next to the shirt store, that's how how you start to impact the way that craft beer moves across the country. But what about the inverse? I mean, you were in San Francisco uh, in the late 60s. So there's a lot of things about craft beer that 
share a commonality in, in terms of like the, the goals and the thoughts of the counterculture movement of the 60s that was really had its epicenter right where you were. But, you know, when I look back at pictures of uh, Fritz Maytag in the 1960s, I am not seeing a hippie. Uh, so how did, did what you were doing, how was it influenced, if it was at all, by kind of the counterculture movement around you? And, and how did those two things interconnect? Okay, I'll try to respond to that. It's a very perceptive uh, observation on your part in both Cases. First of all, I like to say the 60s happened in San Francisco in the 60s. Everywhere else, you know, they happened in the 70s. We were, we were way out ahead here. And we had a lot of very interesting advantages that helped my brewery. It was, in many ways, the, the birth of the food movement in America started here. And there are reasons for that, including the wine industry, you know, the Italians came to America and figured out that California was the place to, to grow things and make wine. And there's a long history of, uh, in San Francisco, of a very, very cosmopolitan attitude towards food and drink. And we benefited from that. We benefited from the fact that San Francisco is everybody's favorite city. It used to be anyway. And there's just nothing but positive reaction in those days to the to the idea that something was from San Francisco. And we made a huge point of that. The marketing that we did was in line with, as you were just trying, you were implying, with the 60s attitude, we were local, we were handmade, we were entirely natural. It's uh, one of the curiosities is that in the early days when we started bottling, one of our biggest, and we had a struggle to find any sales at all, but one of our biggest Markets was the what was then called the natural food stores, the health food stores. They got on to the idea that there were no additives in Anchor Steam. Mind you, there was nothing in the in Budweiser that was harmful either. I think, uh, but or at least most of the time, not. Uh, there were a couple of health scares in the brewing business, but so we were a natural, handmade, local. Uh, somewhat kooky, given that just the name is bad enough. And as for Hippie, if you look at the picture of us at the brewery, I'm in a necktie, but you see, I was actually kind of a secret Hippie. I I mean, none of, the, none of us were ever Hippies, mind you, but I was very um, attuned to the basic good values of the 60s, as we now think of them. But I grew up, my father ran the Maytag Appliance Company. I grew up in a business environment. Manufacturing was in our family blood. And I also was proud to fail. I struggled frantically to not fail. Uh, it basically, I, I was, I like to say, I was crazy for 10 years. I just refused to admit <laughs> we weren't going to succeed. And... I wore a necktie every day. San Francisco was one of the places in America where every serious, per, every man who was in any way professional wore a necktie. A lot of people don't realize that. But in Palo Alto, they didn't wear neckties. But in San Francisco, if you were in business and you were a man, you wore a necktie or you were just a, just a nothing. And I wore a necktie every single day uh, all of those years 
even though we were south of market, which was the wrong end of town, you know, it was on the wrong side of the tracks. But I wore a necktie as a sign of, uh, of conviction that we were going to succeed and that we were a serious business and that I was serious business person. So it was a mix uh, of the counterculture, which was very real in, in, in many ways, and the, uh, the traditional business culture. So it's a, it was a curious thing. So you're a serious business person in this very sort of non-traditional climate out there. And I read a great story about you trying to get arrested. The way I heard this story is that you were so hard up for publicity at some point that you thought it would be a great idea to get arrested. And the way you went about doing that was driving around with a bunch of hops in your front seat. And hops, as we all know, you know, look and smell like marijuana. And you were hoping that some cop would mistake hops for pot. You'd get arrested and it would make news when you, you know, proved that it was just hops. Uh, is that a, a true story? Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a true story. And um, so in those days, we were desperate for publicity. The feeling was that a lot of people thought the brewery had gone bankrupt years before. We needed any kind of publicity, and I lived on the other side of the hate from the brewery. I had to drive through the hate every night, and I had a hop sample, and I put it on the side on the passenger seat and drove through the hate, thinking it would be great fun if I got arrested, and it turned out to be hops, of course. <laughs> so that's a true story. I, I did that for, I don't know, better part of a week, maybe. I drove back and forth with the hops on the front seat. And did you ever succeed in getting arrested? No, you couldn't get arrested. Nobody got arrested. Which goes back to San Francisco. I mean, it. So the '60s does happen in the '60s in San Francisco, but you know, you grew to a point where it was necessary to get a a new location. And I've read that you were very dedicated to staying in San Francisco, but when you were making that decision, I mean, I, and San Francisco is such a, an amazing, gorgeous city. I love to go there, but in the seventies, I mean, it was really kind of its, its low point, correct? I mean, that, that was, you were making a commitment to stay in a city that was really in its roughest times in, in the 1970s. In what way would you say it was a rough time? I guess what I'm referring to is that I've read the crime rate was really high in San Francisco in the 70s. I mean, you had uh, Zodiac running around killing people and a couple famous serial killers out there. I just kind of equate San Francisco in the 70s with being kind of run down and in a, a really bad state. You know, it's not like New York, for example, which declared bankruptcy in the 70s, and everybody was really fleeing from it like rats off a ship. But it still sounds to me like San Francisco was, was kind of on hard times when you're making that decision to double down and build a, a bigger brewery there. Yeah, I don't share that impression, but frankly, I didn't even think about it. I lived here, and we were here, and that San Francisco was a great place to be, and um, I think the whole economy, of course, went through hell. When I was building the new brewery, the prime rate was 21. Wow, yeah. Oh, my goodness. 21? 
Yeah. It hit 21. I had a horrible time borrowing money. It took me forever. I I was absolutely on the utter total verge of bankruptcy for a year or more and uh, unable to get a real loan. It was just unbelievably difficult time. What a weird uh, dichotomy versus today where money's basically free and it's easy if you have half a brain and a good business plan to get some money. Yeah. Well, you remember that was what they called stagflation. The economy was struggling and there was wild inflation all at the same time. So when did things start to turn around? I was in the black in 75, 10 years. Wow. Wow. You were chugging away and wouldn't give up for 10 years. I mean, it had to, that had to, there had to have been days where you're like this, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah, no, I was crazy. I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't admit it. I just, I wouldn't admit it. I had my own financial resources. I had been given money when I was a boy by my father. Everybody who who does something like this has to get money from somewhere, their grandparents or their friends or their parents or or something. And I had mine. I didn't have to go out and, and beg for it. I already had some, but it was a desperate thing to spend it uh, like that. Like that. I had to write a check every Friday for, you know, for payday. And then eventually I would not write a check on a, on a Friday and then not again for the next Friday and then not again on the next Friday. And then I would have to write a small check. And gradually uh, we began, we were actually in, in the black. And that was when I realized that we had to have a new building and a new brewery and started getting serious and started looking at buildings. So that feeling of we are going to change the face of American beer I mean, that had to have hit you far sooner than profitability. I was sure we were going to, I used, I used to say, we have the world by the tail. The world doesn't know it yet. But mind you, I wasn't absolutely sure. But I just, I had a strong inkling that we really had the right thing at the right time in the right place. And I also, from very early on, was determined not to grow big. I told Ken Grossman once, you wanted to get as big as you could, and I wanted to stay small, and it doesn't mean that one of us was wrong. I used to visit uh, business schools and give talks, and I always focused on the, the few students that I knew were there who maybe wanted to start a small business, who didn't necessarily want to get as big as you could. In those days, everybody wanted to get as big as they could. You know that was kind of the main thing. And business means you just you turn you turn into a billionaire. And I didn't want to. I liked it being small. I wanted to stay small. I struggled in many ways against uh, growing bigger. And um, it was a big advantage, I think, uh, from some points of view, that I my goals were modest. Was that about the quality of the beer and and the freedom to brew what you wanted? I was convinced in those days that small handmade uh, products uh, could be better. I changed my mind about that over time to a significant extent. Um, you know, the sign of a great mind is that it can change, right? I became impressed with the fact that modern technology, computers, among other things, but also clear thinking management concepts, could lead to very high quality control, very high quality quality control, and that large companies could, some of them could, in fact, make 
great products and might even be able to be more consistent than a small company. But I didn't want to go there. I loved then, and I still love the idea of a of a small local, what I would call real enterprise, where the owner is actually responsible, where there is integrity in the sense that the company values and the owner's values are integrated. I used to use the example, if you're in Italy and you're staying in a small inn out in the country, and they say, we've got two wines you can have with dinner, both of them very good. There's a, they're red wines, and one comes from the big co-op downtown, and the other one uh, we make here from my grandfather's vineyard above the inn here. Which wine do you want? Well, there's no question. Right. They want the one that was made right there, of course. Absolutely. It's got soul. Yes. It's got integrity in this. It's integrated with the whole enterprise. Now, if you try that wine and you don't, and it's sour, the next night you have the one from the co-op. <laughs> and now you're getting the advantage of for the quality control that comes from the fact that they have a computer down at the co-op and they have a winemaker who went to UC Davis and I don't know what else, but yes, but what if it was sour on purpose though? <laughs> so I'm just joking, <laughs> but I mean, uh, and, and, you know, I, I get your point that from a scientific standpoint and from a management standpoint, size doesn't mean that you can't produce a very high quality beer, but from a realistic standpoint, doesn't size still typically mean that you won't produce a really quality beer because you have stockholders that demand you find ways to cut costs? And, you know, isn't there also some of that soul that gets lost when, you know, even a really good craft beer starts to get produced on a, a huge scale? Well, I would like to think so, but um, uh, I'm not sure it's true as a as a rule it can certainly happen but the dynamics of size and quality in business is an astonishingly complicated story i think but the one thing that is consistent is is there somebody at the top who cares with pride about the product never mind the bottom line you know if you if you're working to for the bottom line and you don't and you're not proud of your product, uh, it's just a tragedy. So, and that's, I think, more likely to happen in a big company or than in a small one. Although a lot of small companies are trying to get big, and that that's that can be a problem there too. So, it's not an easy story, but it's an interesting one. Yeah, that that's. Um, I think those are all good points. So, holiday beers are my favorite type of beers. They're malty. They're spicy. They're not hoppy usually. They're just wonderful treats that come out right around the holiday times when spirits are high and you're getting with your family. It just feels good and it makes me feel good. I really love it. And in learning more about beer, I realized that prior to what you've done, Fritz, holiday beers in this country haven't existed since Prohibition. So what was it about holiday beers, about seasonals in particular, that made it so that you guys wanted to brew our special ale, which is your Christmas beer. Well, it's a long story, but I would say to you, I consider the whole Christmas ale project uh, just an absolute triumph. I, I used to say there are two things that the brewer needs. One is a beer that uh, 
is only available in the winter when sales drop off. And the other is a retail sign so good that the retailers will pay for it. I never achieved the sign, but I did do the beer. <laughs> I knew about the history of seasonal and also ceremonial beers, you know, in England. I've studied brewing history at great length. I had a wonderful library that I had accumulated over many, many years, and I read those books, and I knew about the history of beers that were brewed for um, special events, often in England in, for uh, church uh, events, but also bride ale. When I got married, in, uh, I made a bride ale for my wedding. Um, so I knew about that history, and I wanted to, to try an ale. I knew I needed more than one product. It was uh, risky to have only one product. And I tried to brew an ale, and I didn't like the result. Went to England and visited all kinds of small breweries, which was fascinating, but actually very depressing because they were all so primitive. And none of the beers were interesting in any way to me. And so I came home and, and brewed a barley wine and a Christmas ale that fall of 75. Both concepts that I had developed as I was working on the question of what kind of ale to make. And the first Christmas ale was just my basically my second attempt and a serious attempt to make a very, very traditional ale. You know, there were no all malt ales in England. In Britain, there, there were, well, I take that back. Maybe Guinness was. I don't know about that. Might have been. But there was there were no porters in England. No dark beer, no true dark beers in England. They were all colored with caramel, you know. And so we brewed the Christmas ale was simply a very, very serious attempt to make a, an old-fashioned, pure, simple, traditional ale. It was only later that we added... Uh, spices and flavorings and stuff, which was another triumph, I thought. Anyway, we didn't have a capacity to brew ale on a regular basis. So we just, I just, so I just did it that once and sold it as Christmas. We only had, a, you know, a few hundred cases of it, 200, I think. But uh, we put a tree on the label and that continued all these years. So it's been a triumph. And um, the number of people who've copied it is just absolutely astonishing to me. One of the things I'm proud of is uh, we, we said Merry Christmas, Happy New Year on the label, and we have every year since. Even in 75, I knew that that was naughty. <laughs> <laughs> My sister converted to Judaism and raised her children in the Jewish faith. And I said at the time, if I was Jewish, I would ha I would launch a, a Hanukkah ale. Uh, it's We were free to do anything. That was the beauty of being small, you see. I came home from England and I said, we're going to brew a barley wine. And they said, what's a, what's a barley wine? I said, all malt, high gravity, no no sparge, just, you know, it was original gravity, it was 24. And all malt and highly hopped, uh, there was nothing like it in the world. And we just did it. We did it the next week. I could do anything I wanted. I, I was like a craftsman with the tools, you see. You created so many modern American styles that way. Old Foghorn, like you were saying. Uh, Liberty Ale, arguably the first American IPA. Is it just as simple as that? You had your tool chest and you're just like... We had the tools. I had the momentum and I had the knowledge. Uh, I was thinking about that the other day, the knowledge. You know, in England, in London, the taxi drivers, you know about that? No. no. Oh, well, imagine trying to drive a taxi in England, in London. You, somebody gets in and he says, I want to go to 22 Winkleton Place, which is uh, 20 miles from the center of London and down some funny little street and up a hill and around the corner. 
and there are only six houses, who's going to know how to go there before modern, you know, before the GPS searching and all that? And so you used to see in London people on bicycles with a great big thick book in the basket in front of them, and they were out, uh, they were planning to become a taxi driver. But first they had to acquire what was called the knowledge. That is, they had to know London, every single place in London. That was called the knowledge, which is a, just a lovely concept. Yeah. Yes. So we had the knowledge, you see, and we had the tools, and I had the imagination or, or enthusiasm, maybe, uh, better, and we just ran wild. We had, <laughs> we had a wonderful time. Wheat beer, the whole thing, you know. I mean, we were, anyway. <laughs> when you look back on it, I mean, do you have a proudest moment with Anchor? I do, actually, but it was after I sold it. I was in the brewery a year or so after I sold it, and I went up to the roof office, which I had built for myself to sort of get away and uh, have quiet meetings and take a nap or, or think without anybody around. Anyway, they had converted it to another use, and so then I walked down through the brewery from that roof office all the way to the cellar. And when I got down to the bottom, I realized that I had personally done everything that was physically in the brewery. Someone else would install it almost always. I might have helped. But it was my concept, my design, my uh, with all kinds of help, of course, from my staff, from outsiders, from all kinds of consultants and all the rest of it. But I had personally designed and basically installed every single thing in that brewery. I was astonished. And then I got to thinking about it, and I realized that when we were at our heyday, brewing like crazy with the knowledge, uh, as I said earlier, I like that a lot. I had never thought of that before, but I like that. We had the knowledge. Anyway, I realized in the whole brewing industry, in the whole world, nobody had a more comprehensive knowledge of the brewing business than I did. I had delivered the beer and picked up the empty kegs with stale, old, nasty fish on top. You know, I had driven the truck. I had written out all the bills. I had crushed the malt. I had, we had, I, we, but I especially had had a, a knowledge of every aspect. Now, of course, in any given part of the brewing world, there were many, many people who had much more knowledge than I did. But I had a comprehensive knowledge of the brewing trade. I swear, I think, like nobody in the world, which was an amazing realization. And I've only, I told a few people about it later, and I realized it sounded egotistical. But I'm telling you, when you asked me about the proudest moment, that day when I walked down through the brewery, I got an overwhelming sense of how deeply involved I'd been in every valve, every pump, every, every everything. And it was thrilling. First of all, there is absolutely no shame in feeling that kind of pride. And, you know, I, I would imagine that for a very long period of time, uh, you had a depth of knowledge 
that I, you know, I can't imagine anybody else did have. It was broad. You see, it was a broad knowledge. I had, I had stood on malt in a floor malting in England. How many people? Well, hundreds, thousands, maybe, but certainly uh, hardly anybody else in America probably ever had. And I had done, I had, you know, I had grown hops in my backyard and watched them grow and climb and picked them and put them in the brew myself and you name it. And I had done it uh, and I had read about it. So I knew, mind you, it was broad knowledge. It was not so deep really anywhere other than maybe brewing bacteria, but it was quite something. It was the knowledge. It was interesting. Is there anything that you would have done differently? Well, of course, the thing is that I didn't do, which I'm glad I didn't, but it was it's an obvious, terrible, terrible mistake. I didn't hire a brewmaster to come in and make my brewery and say, look, I've got some money. Just tell me what to do. It took me years to figure out that we were going to do it and that we had to spend the money and that, how to do it and what to do. And we made mistakes. And we um, uh, so I spent years uh, learning when I could have just hired somebody to do it for me. I'm glad I didn't, and it never even occurred to me to do it, uh, although I did. I tried to hire, uh, twice I tried to hire someone that I thought might be able to take over as a brew, basically as brewmaster, you know, someone to be doing the physical working and designing and running of the brewery. And in both cases, they turned me down. Uh, one was a charming German guy who ended up running one of the Schlitz breweries. In, it was in Florida. But he uh, was a young, new brewer at Lucky Lager in San Francisco. His family owned a small brewery in Germany. And he came to visit. He wanted to see, what are we doing? And I said, I need help. I can't figure out what in the world to do about the mash. We have got we had a combination mash in Lauderton. You know, you use the same tank and both. And you stir and stir and get a conversion. And then you let it settle on the plates and, and run off. And our mash uh, was... Uh, four feet thick and we had a terrible time getting a good conversion and then we had a terrible time getting a, a good runoff he came up and climbed up on top of the platform and looked in the in the tank and he uh, jumped up and jumped in to that tank oh my god oh my god <laughs> and i thought now there is a man after my own heart he loves it he is willing to see it and do it and touch it and figure it out with me. And I offered him a job uh, sometime later to, to be the brewmaster. He turned me down. but um, <laughs> He went to make Schlitz instead. <laughs> well, you know, um, it was a pretty iffy thing to work for Anchor Steam. In that case. <laughs> right. One point is that I used to emphasize a lot is that I insisted until my last day that I was the brewmaster. Uh, now, actually, I, of course, I had a staff, terrific staff, including Mark Carpenter and Gordon McDermott, uh, who, in effect, were kind of like sort of like co-brewmasters. They did the kinds of things that a normal brewmaster would do, but I would never give up the authority. Nobody would have dreamed of making a change in anything without coming to me and asking for advice and counsel and to work it out together. And I did that because I saw breweries like the FX Matt, Leinenkugel, Latrobe uh, family brewers, 
where the owners knew nothing about brewing, or almost nothing, actual practical knowledge. One of those guys, I won't say which, uh, said to me once, you're brewing an ale and Anchor Steam, but my brewmaster says we can't have two brew two yeasts in the brewery. Uh. <laughs> and I thought, I just pitied the, the guy. <laughs> you know, he didn't have the knowledge. We'd had a, we'd had two yeasts for ten years at that point. That is something we greatly, I greatly admire in people is having a curiosity and wanting to understand why and how and I don't think you could have done anything that you're doing if you weren't willing to buck American brewing tradition at the time which I mean was a big deal like American brewing tradition in 1965 was quickly becoming lager and not much else that's for sure although what you were doing was also kind of quintessentially American and it's entrepreneurial spirit and um yeah i think that's true when you look out at the craft beer industry today what are your thoughts i mean what what do you like about what you see and is there anything about it that troubles you oh yeah it's, it's, i think it's crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's insane we had three three thousand breweries open one year recently it's crazy there's no reason for it uh, there's no need for it uh, it's just a wildly enthusiastic phenomenon that's gone out of control uh it's great fun of course it's a great day for the beer drinker my god and just think of all the fun that the brewers have had the small breweries i mean it's just an amazing charming wonderful renaissance of uh, creativity and productivity and all the rest of it including your stupid sour beer i I (laughs) i couldn't believe that when that happened anyway but I think it's um, it's bound to, to slow down and and close. They'll, some will close, but it's a fascinating thing that the, so many have opened and so many have survived and been profitable. And um, so you know the world of brewing is just going crazy, but in a very nice way. It's just um, there's no rules really anymore, which is kind of fun. I was thinking the other day about something, which is that one of the reasons I think that the brewing micro craft brewers have succeeded is that you have the bottle right there on the table in the bread business. If, if I go to town and I buy a, you know, Dr. Finney's pumpernickel muffin, pretty unique. I bring it home and I eat it with some friends. It's sitting there on the table. It's just bread. There's no badge, no flag, no symbol, no character designation along with it it's just a piece of bread but if i'm having a bottle of uh, somebody's beer from a small brewery in oklahoma or whatever there it is on the table i can see the label the colors the design the personality the message that i am distinctive i'm unique uh, and that is a huge advantage it's, it used to be also true in the wine business, you know, in the, in the old days, if you were a wine lover, when you finished dinner in a restaurant, you would send the bottle back to the kitchen. And they knew what to do. You steamed the label off for you because you collected labels. And uh, so they would bring the label back uh, in a, like a paper towel or something, having steamed it off. You didn't even have to, you hardly even had to mention why you gave it to them. And I, I w- went to a restaurant once, I ordered a small bottle of French wine that I was curious about. 
And before I had finished, they came and took the bottle away. I jumped out of my chair <laughs> and got into a, you know, a knockdown drag out fight with the sommelier. I wanted that bottle there on my table. I wanted to drink the wine and savor the label and the bottle and the personality message that I got from the bottle all at the same time. And I think that's a huge advantage that the beer drinker has. The bottle is there. Now, you say, well, with draft beer, that's not true. And that's and I agree. But I do think that um, the bottles on the table make a huge difference in terms of selling the concept of variety and creativity and uniqueness and smallness and all the rest. Well, it has been an amazing pleasure to have this conversation with you. And uh, we so appreciate the time that you've taken here to, to have it. This has been one of the highlights of my very short brewing career currently. Thank you so, so much for talking to us. Well, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed listening to the Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast, please subscribe and like our show on whatever streaming service you use, whether that be Spotify, Apple, or YouTube Music, or any of the other ones that are available. We would greatly appreciate it, and it goes a long way towards us being able to continue to produce this great content. So I learned a lot of things, Brett. What was the most amazing thing to you from that interview? Well, personally, on a very selfish level being told by the father of craft beer or one of the fathers of craft beer that the beer that you have dedicated your life and financial future to making is stupid <laughs> felt good <laughs> i mean put that on a shirt and it's gonna sell uh, so that felt pretty good uh on a bigger holistic history level what I think was really eye-opening between these two conversations with Renee and Fritz was how different of people Jack and Fritz were. Yeah, they definitely. were on polar end of the American capitalist spectrum, where you had basically the libertarian wet dream that is Jack McAuliffe doing his thing his own way and not giving a shit about the business and the finances and well, I can't say that for sure, but like seemingly and not worried about anything else besides doing what he's going to do because damn it, that's what he wants to do and he knows what's good and he wants to make it and sell it and share it with people. And on the other end, you have more of the traditional American capitalist dream of I'm going to buy a smaller failing brewery that has the infrastructure in place, that has all the, the harder bureaucratic bullshit work done, come in and Give it the sold spit polish. Finance it a little bit better. Get that marketing plan down right. Focus on the business while also investing in the infrastructure so you can make quality beer and you can increase your consistency and spend a little bit of money in the hopes of getting more money in the future. It's these two things that really, to me, highlight why people debate who was first. Because they both had such different ideological principles. But at the end of the day, they're both similar in the sense that they knew that quality beer was really step one. Yes. And they came about that in different ways. But I guess I struggled with 
always hearing Fritz Maytag mentioned as like father of craft beer in America. Okay, but he bought a pre-existing brewery. So I didn't really understand what he had created or invented in buying a brewery that had existed since the 1800s. That's a great point. And I have a much better understanding of that now. I mean, what he did was buy, yeah, he bought this brewery, it pre-existed, but the equipment was all garbage. The beer was piss. And in that process of, of breaking down, you know, he took that thing and just broke the whole thing down into what's wrong with this scene. And, you know, he's not a scientist, he's not a brewer, but he goes home and he gets his microscope and he brings it to the brewery and he starts trying to, to crack the problem of what's wrong with the beer. You know, where is the bacteria coming from? Uh, why is my beer getting soured and how do I fix that? And in that process, I think, he reinvented how we did beer in America, right? I mean, like the big guys, yeah, there's science behind what Coors and Anheuser-Busch and, and Pabst are doing at the time, but it's also on a large corporate level. You know, it's on kind of like a Cargill uh, level. He is really the first one that does that on this small level and starts making a quality beer at that scale and starts doing uh, some really good marketing to get it out there and start moving it around. Well, quality too in the sense of, yes, it was a great, delicious beverage, but he focused heavily on consistency. Every batch should taste like the prior batch of that same beer. What struck me just now is he bought this previous brewery and he is supposedly the first craft brewery. What the hell was this other brewery doing? <laughs> Sucking? <laughs> well, what were they making? Why aren't they considered craft at all? Why does no one ever talk about them? You mean pre the pre-existing Anchor Steam? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it sounds like the pre-existing Anchor Steam was really just a living corpse. You know, there was no reason for them to still be existing, except maybe the fact that this guy that ran the old spaghetti factory was dedicated to having local beer on tap. So, you know, they're getting by selling a few kegs here or there. And, and that too, you know, old spaghetti factory became a national chain. So, it sounds kind of funny to talk about Old Spaghetti Factory as this super cool place because it, it sort of feels like talking about, you know, hanging out at Applebee's, right? Well, I have a longstanding theory of that Applebee's, the first one, was cool. When Applebee's came out, yeah, it was probably. probably pretty awesome. Yeah. But it's not anymore, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know their history, but yeah, there was probably like some really funky, kick-ass uh, bar restaurant you know, by some guy named Appleby uh, somewhere in Wisconsin or whatever. And they they turned it into a chain. Did the same thing with the Old Spaghetti Factory. And actually for a chain, uh, I used to go to Old Spaghetti Factory as a kid a lot. And they were pretty cool. But nevertheless, it was not a chain that they're talking about. This was ground zero of Old Spaghetti Factory. You know, it was such a cool, iconic place in San Francisco at that time that they turned it into a national chain. So, you know, this Anchor Steam Brewery as it existed, I think that 
it was just a hanger on. I mean, I, I don't really know that it's clear how they were still in business in the 60s when Maytag got involved. So, yeah, he didn't invent the name. He didn't create the brewery, but he did completely rebuild it and he did reinvent it. I mean, you can turn something around so completely that it is the equivalent of creating it. You know, I was also blown away by the fact that this guy came from uh, a life of privilege and a lot of opportunity. And I think that there's a couple of different ways that you can handle that. You know, you can Paris Hilton it uh, and just run around and do a bunch of coke and, you know, get out of cars without your underwear on. And uh, I mean, which I appreciate. I'm not against that. Feel free to keep doing that. But, you know, you can just sort of rest on your laurels and take advantage of uh, that wealth that you've been given. Or you can really feel compelled to go out and make your own way. And he is definitely of that second category. I mean, this is a driven man. I believe in luck on a personal level, but I also believe that you can stack the odds in your favor. You can be prepared, you can be ready for when opportunities present themselves, but you still need the opportunity to present itself. Luck is part of every success story. There is not one success story out there that doesn't contain some luck, but it's rare that that's all that it is. No, it's a small point of it. And especially if, if you're... Sometimes it's a big point of it. If you win the fucking lottery, well, it's yeah. mostly luck. <laughs> well, and if you're in Fritz's shoes too, he's probably thinking, oh, I'm not lucky. I fucking worked hard and I, I did it and I made it happen. But like, oh, there's some luck. He, the, yes. the timing was just well, brilliant. It's just brilliant. And the difference, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that we can see the difference between Jack McAuliffe and Fritz Maytag and I think some of the other people that we're going to talk to is the difference between capital. You know, Fritz was trying to stay and work within his own budget, but at the end of the day, he wasn't going to wind up in a homeless shelter if his beer didn't sell. I mean, he had a buffer. And I think that's why some people kind of give him some flack for the fact that, oh, yeah, this guy, you know, starts out rich, so it's easy to do what he did. And uh, that is bullshit. But at the same time, it would have been infinitely harder had he not had the confidence of the capital behind him. You know, had he not had uh, the ability to break even or lose money for a while and not go bankrupt in the process. Well, it's a story as old as time. It's it's this whole thing. Well, there's the cliche within beer of how do you make a small fortune? Start with a large fortune. Rip. <laughs> Great. We get it. But... If you put all, every single dollar you have into starting the business and getting it running and you're just breaking even, well, you can never grow. You're right. infinitely forever stuck. And Fritz never had that issue. I mean, it, it, you can't really plan ahead when you're treading water. That's exactly what it is. So Fritz brings up this concept of the knowledge, this powerful mental force that is able to propel you to success. The way he elevates this, it's almost religious in a way. Now, I know, you know, he kind of glossed over it a couple of times, but that whole story of the London taxi drivers and prepping and learning the knowledge, the knowledge, like, it's just this common thing. Like, yeah, okay, duh. You got to know what the fuck you're doing. 
to do a thing and be successful at it. But the way he reveres it. What I got out of that is you have to sort of dial it back and think about it at the time. It's, let me use a very uh, bad analogy. Like Blade Runner. I rewatched the original Blade Runner not too long ago. And it's a good movie, but you watch it and it just feels like so many other sci-fi movies. It even has so many sci-fi cliches in it. And so it's just a fine movie. Until you realize that when it came out, it was the first to do those things. All those cliches are cliches because it came first. So I think it's hard sometimes to dial back and imagine what it was like when common sense wasn't common sense. When he's referring to the knowledge, my interpretation of it is the way that those cab drivers, you know, intricately know the city of London. Yeah, you intricately know your brewery today, but that's kind of why this guy was the father of craft brewing in America. Because if you go back to that era, you know, you have the mass breweries and Anheuser-Busch it's scientific, but it's scientific to a point where a bunch of cogs in a machine know when to press what button on what machine and pour, you know, X amount of predetermined grains and hops into this vat or that vat. They're not really, no one individual is intimately involved with every process. They don't know brewing. why they're pushing the button right. at the time they're pushing their button. Right. That is a very enlightening way to frame that. That's the knowledge. The why. The why right. is the knowledge. Yeah. Now, that's something I can relate to on a very intimate level because it's something I push hard at our brewery. Why are we doing this? And it's my favorite thing to ask employees, and I'm sure they fucking hate it, but I come <laughs> up to them and I play dumb, and I'm like, oh, why are you doing that? And I make them explain it to me. And they know I know, which, you know, further makes them nervous. But you really can get to the core of someone's understanding by forcing them to explain why they're doing any given thing. Now, that's cool. And so that ultimately is why he should rank as one of the fathers of craft brewing. I mean, when you have Jack McAuliffe coming later, Jack McAuliffe also has the knowledge. You know, he has the knowledge to build his own brewery. But really, Fritz Maytag, although he bought a brewery, everything in it was garbage. So he was also doing the, the same thing. You know, he was the first one to really reintegrate all of the aspects of brewing on that scale. You know, where the, the people working in the brewery can, like your employees, answer the why to every step of what they do. Elucidating, illuminating, educating. Was there any other words that I could make up that this conversation was? Absolute honor and a lot of fun. Fritz Maytag's yeah. a funny motherfucker. He really is. <laughs> holy crap. I've never so, felt so more honored and burned in my entire life. But holy shit. I mean, what a great happy hour. I think it's time to take this happy hour into a happier hour and we should head to the bar. Absolutely. I'm going to even drink a sour. <laughs> Cheers to that. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is a production of Bruce Guys Limited in association with 779, a leading video production and content creation agency. With over a decade of experience, 779 works with a wide range of clients, from global brands to boutique startups to mom-and-pop shops. Visit 779video.com for more information. That's the numbers 779video.com. This episode was edited by Dan Fennessy, who is also our executive producer. This podcast was engineered by Adam Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.